Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Nick Pope, and you're listening to the Paranormal UK Radio Network, the UK's biggest paranormal network. And this is Paranormal Dimensions with David Young. Paranormal Dimensions is fortnightly on Mondays on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. Many times in the history of our civilization, the introduction of a new thought has brought skepticism, even ridicule. Despite this, there always has remained the duty and an alienable right to tell the people the truth. For me, this is the kind of show that I like doing most, where you basically just have a freewheeling discussion, have a chance to go off on topics. That's what's going to make you an outstanding player in the field. Just keep doing it. going to be definitely interesting, something you don't want to miss. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you for that introduction, Nick. And thank you for those kind comments, Peter Robbins. And thank you for that comment. Uh, I think that was one of our excited staff members. <laughs> okay, I've got a very exciting show for you today. Um, if you've ever been interested in the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident from 1980, where um, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and a few others were involved in seeing a craft landing in the uh, Rendlesham Woods, or Rendlesham Forest, uh, this one's for you. Um uh, the, the guest today is Gary Osborne. He wrote a book called The Rendlesham Enigma, Book One Timeline, with Jim Penniston. It's a very, very detailed book, uh, as uh, if anyone's uh, actually got it. It's getting off for 700 pages long, and it is really what I would call the definitive uh, Rendlesham Forest UFO book. And uh, I understand there's more to come. Okay, right. Uh, before I actually go into um, the show, I'm just going to read a bit off the back of the book. Um, the Rendlesham Forest incident of December 1980 is considered by far the most significant event in UFO history. It was also a unique military-related event, having taken place in Rendlesham Forest just outside the t- of the twin bases of the RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk, England, both of which had been transferred to the United States Air Force in 1951 by the British MOD, which means Ministry of Defence, becoming one of the largest and most important NATO complexes in Europe during the Cold War. The account given in this book is that of James W. Penniston, a staff sergeant at the time of the incident, who was the primary witness who led the investigation in the beginning and had a top secret clearance. 
one of only eight people with top secret clearance working security at the twin bases. His credibility and honesty were highly respected throughout his years in the US Air Force. Jim Penniston has teamed up with author Gary Osborne to present the definitive account of the Rendlesham incident and the aftermath of events, just as he witnessed and experienced them from the incident itself, which began during the early hours or the early morning hours of Boxing Day, December the 26th, 1980. And these events go up to April 2014, and they're still ongoing, to be honest. Okay. Right, just before I bring Gary on, I'm just going to play a small segment of um, Jim Penniston. It's about 11 minutes, um, actually describing his first encounter with the uh, when, he, when he first saw the UFO. And this is from the show he did with me, well, get on for a couple of years ago now. Um, but it sort of shows um, his feelings about first seeing the UFO. Just have a listen to this before I introduce Gary. And as we approached into the forest, uh, there was a bright light that um, uh, it just exploded, and but without a without sound. Okay, so you know after hitting the ground, uh, uh, I got up and there, and of course there's a berm in front of me. and I see, well, the law enforcement patrol, Burles, he was 25 feet back to the right of me. And I had Kabanzak, I would say, was probably 50 yards, uh, maybe tops, where the entry control point was. Uh, anyway, we're all in visual contact, okay? Yeah. Um, and so uh, as I uh, approach over the... Um, started going up toward the berm, I started getting physical effects um, uh, before I got there, like um, um, like static electricity on my uh, skin, hair, clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, no sound. For some reason, the air was like dead. Um, um, and you couldn't hear like uh, air or breeze through the trees or, you know, like m- me walking on the, in the forest floor, which is crunchy anyway, by, you know, debris and stuff. Um, and as I come up to the berm, I, uh, I terminated, I called in CSC and I said, I'm terminating the, uh, uh, security response option for downed aircraft. I'm initiating a helping hand situation. Uh, and that, is a Air Force term for a possible hostile threat to a priority A, B, or C resource on the base. Right. Okay. Uh, so right at that point in time, it was no longer a recovery mode, anything. It was more of a security. It was a security situation. And as I come over the, the berm, the, you know, the, the light had dissipated and, uh, what, what was appeared there was a, a triangular craft. Uh, which cannot be there because uh, the forest is too small. Hmm. It's the trees are too close together in a, in a, in a very small clearing. So uh, I figured the best thing to do is do my job, uh, get as much information as I can. And, and I was making the security checks and uh, write down in, in my notebook as much as I could. And hopefully that would be enough, uh, 
in the uh, in, in the event I didn't make it, uh, at least the command element would know what happened exactly out there, and then they, that would help them make decisions. And uh, so I found my movements as I come toward the Triangle Craft uh, labored. It felt the uh, best way to describe it is um, like you'd walk through a pool of water, mm. you know, waist high or something like that. I mean, I was struggling to get through it. Um, one of the theories I have now uh, that we worked over and over again is probably that the sphere of influence around this craft um, has this distorted time or 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 reality. I don't know where um, maybe it's catching up, it's out of sync, something like that. And uh, so as the closer I got to the, 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 I mean, the craft, I mean, no longer eight feet away, I'm five, four feet away. Mm-hmm. I felt uh, the uh, restrictions of movement seemed to dissipate. And um, they had, um, like, godlier colors running through the fabric of the skin of the craft. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were slowing down throughout the craft. And finally they just stopped. And they just sort of faded away and dissipated. So all I had was a black craft. Um, in, in my description, it was like black glass uh, because um, it was also, I will tell you about, you know, touching it and the smoothness of it. Uh, but uh, I did some immediate things. I didn't have no measuring devices out there. So I had to use what I had. Uh, I'm six foot two. And... Uh, it was uh, sitting above the ground somehow, uh, and I guesstimated that somewhere between six and a half to seven and a half feet high uh, at the dorsal area of the craft. Um, I uh, pasted it off. I paced off, uh, and my stride's pretty good. I get like three feet for a stride, so I did three of them. It was nine feet long, and that was equal on every side. Um, at least it appeared that way. Uh, I had a fascination. Uh, there was light coming out from underneath the craft yet, because uh, I didn't even have to use a flashlight out there. And you know how dark that forest can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I was, like, looking underneath, and I couldn't see no landing gear. And I said, I wonder how this is uh, supporting itself. And so, you know, I pushed on it, and it was solid. I mean, it didn't even move one millimeter. It, did, it was that solid. And, but somehow it was fixed over the ground with this light, uh, technology that I still don't understand, um, because obviously we find out later it left impressions um, in the ground. And so I did. I was um, I was pretty in awe, and then I had a mixture of emotions from fear to uh, high anxiety to. Uh, rationalizing it as I was going and I said well I'm still here so it can't, it's got to be benign you know hmm. yeah so that was my thought so I talked myself down from the panic <laughs> <laughs> I, I did and, and so I still uh, uh, continued to do the investigation I was looking for obvious things with the uh, craft itself that all aircraft have, every aircraft has this, and that is uh, intake, 
mm-hmm. exhaust uh, ports, um, um, flaps, uh, areas, things like that. It was void of all those things, uh, which means it cannot fly, but was sitting there. Mm. Hmm. Well, yeah, flying, flying as, as the way we know it, yeah. As the way we, well, that's, I mean, uh, you know, I, we were trained, uh, at least uh, security was trained monthly on aircraft identification, uh, the silhouettes only, stuff like that. I mean, this was not a known aircraft in the Jane's book of aircraft, mm. I mean. Mm. Uh, but, it, but it had, uh, uh, it had sort of human characteristics of it, you know, yeah. I mean, it had, uh, it was triangular at the time, it had a dorsal area which uh, at the end of the, at the rear of it, uh, uh, it did not have crew compartments. I looked for those. Um, the it did not have any riveting. That it was completely smooth. Uh, then, um, did you did you feel that it might have had um, some sort of li- living beings on it, or or would you not? Um, or, or did you just didn't know? Or well, I I. I didn't know. I was just doing the whatever, whatever facts it was. The, the the thing is, is it was too small to be manned by uh, you know a pilot. Yeah. I mean, I, it was just too small for that. Um, uh, you know. So, but somehow it was intelligent because it had intelligent control because it was there. Mm. How did how did it get there? And out in the middle of you know a, a, a forest in Suffolk. Mm. How did this happen? And it seemed, you know? and it seemed to know that you were there as well, didn't it? The, uh, the the people looking at it. Well, I I don't know exactly. Uh, I know that it got docile uh, because of the le- less activity, um, and uh, it seemed uh, uh, they didn't take no type of action for my uh, walking around it. I was uh, still hopeful I, when I seen as I I was going to do a 360 walk around, and I was like I don't know halfway around, and uh, I seen uh, there was uh, writing on it. I went, oh, thank God, there's writing on this thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was like relieved, and uh, I said, yeah, you know, it might be you know uh, NASA, uh, uh, Russian, you know, it could be anything. I was just hoping for anything. And uh, then when I got close to it, it wasn't a write, It wasn't writing. It was it was like uh, glyphs, uh, pictorial glyphs. And I said, "Oh no!" And so you know, I I touched the craft, and it was smooth, and uh, it was warm to touch. Uh, later found out it's probably because it was emulating gamma radiation. Uh, the, the air temperature at that time of night was like, uh, I don't know, 32, 33 degrees. I'm not sure what that is in Celsius. Uh, you can convert it yourself. No. Uh, it was just, just above freezing. Yeah, I it's, think normally, it is. it's normally pretty cold up there at night, I know. <laughs> in yeah. December. Yeah you, yeah, you can see your breath. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, and so uh, I was pretty fascinated by it. So I, I still... I recorded the glyphs and I continued to walk around examining it. And I went around for my second 360 because, um, just to, just to look at it more. And, um, 
when I got back around, you know, of course, I ran my hand across the, the, the craft. It was, like I said, smooth to touch, like uh, black glass is the uh, description I use. And uh, as I came to the first glyph, uh, when I touched that, it was uh, like like uh, equivalent to like sandpaper, okay? Uh, coarse sandpaper, where like it was etched in there. Hmm. And um, so I'm fascinated. There's no doubt about that. I'm in awe because I am pretty sure that we don't have anywhere in our inventory anything like this. No. Okay, that was Jim Penister describing his first uh, encounter with the UFO. So now we'll go straight into the show and introduce Gary Osborne. Hello, Gary. Welcome to the show. Hello, David. Nice to be on here. Oh, I'm absolutely flabbergasted to get you on, Gary, because I know you don't do many of these shows. And, uh, no. <laughs> and I'm absolutely pleased to get you on. And um, I, I know you're very eager to put over your, I don't, I don't know whether you call it a story, but put over your side of um, things, because I know there's been quite a lot of reaction to the Red Ocean Enigma book, uh, book one timeline, which you wrote with Jim Penniston. Um, yeah. And I know that there's going to be a lot of things about facts and figures in here. So yeah. um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, before we kick off, all the listeners out there, if you'd like to get a pencil and a pen or a bit of paper, because you're going to have some figures put over to you, and you might want to write them down, and then you can actually um, do some research yourself into whatever Gary's going to say. And um, but I think you're going to find the whole thing fascinating. It, it sort of blew me away. It actually blew Jim Penniston away as well when when he heard all about what Gary came up with. So anyway, Gary, right? So how did you get to uh, get into all this with Jim Penniston? How did it happen? Yeah, he contacted me back in 2010, I think it was October 2010. And uh, he was he was in a relationship with a mutual friend, uh, and she got in touch with me in 2009 on Facebook. Um, and he said to her that he'd been having dreams about 23.5 degrees, uh, which is a strange thing in itself, really. I mean, who dreams about, mm. you know, uh, an angle? Um Anyway, she told him, why don't you get in touch with Gary Osborne because his research is all about this 23.5 degree angle um, that he's found in different sources throughout history, in mm. numerous sources throughout history. Yeah, if I could just jump in there, if I could just jump in there, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. you. You have actually written a couple of books about the pyramids and th things like that, haven't you? You know, and this is, yeah, what, you know, this is your research, this is why you, you've got, he contacted you. Yeah, my research was all about that what i just said i mean i was finding these references to the angle to the earth's obliquity tilt angle because it's tilted in respect of the ecliptic plane of the sun by 23.5 degrees i mean that is a rough figure that they use you know it's an all-round figure but the actual figure is 23.43 degrees but there's lots of these this is something that i just found out a few days ago the um the Giza complex you know with the pyramids and the sphinx the centre of the Giza complex, right, it actually represents the galactic centre. You know, and it's it, everything that leads to that in a logical way. And, um, of course, the galactic centre might have been responsible for the cataclysms in the past, you know, mm. the kind of matter that was, that was kind of, uh, kind of exploded from it. And when it reached our, when it reached our uh, solar system, 
uh, it caused all kinds of havoc, you know, with the planets and and um, that's what's at the centre of the Giza complex is this point in the centre, which seems to represent the galactic centre because of the timeline, because um, the ages of Taurus and Scorpio are on that same point where the uh, the galactic centre is, and that's what it where it is on the Giza plateau. Really? So, um, so yeah, and yeah, that that's a big thing because then you realise that the you know the the wheel of fortune in the tarot card, hmm. that the tarot card, the wheel of fortune, that actually encodes the uh, the layout of Giza, the actual plan of Giza with the with the um, you know the Giza diagonal timeline. Huh. It's actually encoded in the in the in the wheel of time card, the tarot card. Wow. And then you and then you realise that the wheel of time is actually the galactic, is actually the the Milky Way galaxy and the way it rotates around its centre. You know, it's black hole centre because it's supposed to be a supermassive black hole at mm. the centre. Mm. Uh, but it's also a supermassive white hole. It's a black hole white hole. It's like an alternating black hole white hole. It will spew information out. It will spew, you know, material out and it will suck it material in. So it's an alter, alternating kind of process, you know. Mm. Well, but it takes thousands of years for it to turn from one to the other. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I'll do, I'll try to splice that in at the end of there because I think that would be interesting. I should be able to slot that in. Yeah, but then you realise, you see, then you realise, and I mean, I realised this after I had my experience in 93, that all subatomic particles, which we think are particles, all subatomic ele uh, elementary particles, or, they they are the same thing. There's, there's many black hole, white holes at the centres of them. And so it, they're balanced because the... the, the frequency of their alternation from black hole to white hole is so rapid hmm. they don't they don't pull matter in and they don't push all matter out they they're balanced that's what keeps everything balanced in reality you see it's like each atom is a swirling vortex of energy information that's been pushed out of the center gets sucked back in again and then pushed out again and it's the this process is so rapid that you know it's not noticeable do you see what I'm saying? Hmm, fantastic. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah it does, okay. it does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, you, so you get the bigger things at the centres of galaxies. You know, you get the, you get them at the centres of planets, you mm. get them at the centre of subatomic particles in everything that's in reality. Mm. The centres are many black holes, white holes. Yeah, so I thought I'd tell you that. And actually, I asked Jack Safadi, the physicist, about that, and he says, yeah, you're right, that's what we've been working on. Wow. So, very interesting references to that angle in all these uh, different sources for history and and especially 17th century paintings I first found it in the painting by Poussin um, and I began finding it everywhere you know spears and swords and um, linear objects or edges of tables edges of steps walls uh, at, at this exact angle at 23.5 degrees also 23 degrees so uh, I thought well there must there must be something about the earth's axis that they're trying to communicate um, anyway Jim got in touch with with me about this and he's he actually put on the title of the email 23.5 and I asked him about it and he said I've, he's been having dreams about this 23.5 degree stuff now 
what he said to me was it must be what he thinks it was, it was like temp- certain temperatures on the planet. He thought it was a temperature, hmm. 23.5 degrees temperature. And I said, no, no, it's, it's the Earth's axis, obliquity angle. It's tilted at 23.5. And he said, oh, yeah, I should have known that because we, you know, we all taught that in school, but sometimes we forget the figure. And uh, so it went from there, really. And, I, and he said to me, I think it was in January. Yeah, it was in January 2011. He said, I've, I've got um, these coordinates, these uh, geographic coordinates that I want to send you. And I want you to just have a look at them and see what you think. You know, see if you find any additional information from them. He said, I've, one's gone out already into the public domain. It was shown on Ancient Aliens, uh, Ancient Aliens episode. And uh, that's to do with High Brazil or High Brazil. Hmm. It's how the, I think the Irish pronounce it High Brazil, not yeah. High Brazil. And, um, yeah, I always thought it was Brazil, a, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, but the coordinates, he said, those coordinates, he said, have gone out on TV, you know, on the, on the program. Um, so he said, I've got another six sets of coordinates that are being deciphered right now. And the decipherer I later found out was Joe Luciano, who was a, a binary code expert, who was also in the USAF, same as Jim. And uh, in February... On February the 2nd, which happened to be my son's birthday, he sent them over to me uh, by email, which came in the early hours of the 3rd of uh, February. And I, and I was still up. I, was, I, wasn't, I hadn't gone to bed and I was still up and I've, I've got them through. And, and then I thought, oh, you know, I was so kind of intrigued by it that I wanted to get into it straight away. So now I used Google Earth, which anybody would do. And um, I had... Or, you know, a sort of cursor kind of dramatically make its way to all these ancient sites. Mm. Um, you know, like Caracol, which is um, a Maya pyramid in, in Belize, the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, China, which was uh, Taishan, Mount Taishan. Greece, which is the Temple of Apollo there. You know, this looks like a large uh, kind of framed window, which is, you know, that's all that's left of the uh, temple there. Mm. And it looks like a doorway. Uh, so that's on island of Naxos. Then you had Giza, which was strange because it was a point that what it was, the Giza coordinates from the code kind of targeted this point between uh, G1 and G2. When I say G1, I mean the Great Pyramid and G2 is the second largest pyramid. Hmm. But it was a point between them. It wasn't actually on the pyramid. You'd think that, you know, at Giza... If you was going to target anything, it would probably be the Great Pyramid or the Sphinx, you know. But it was actually in this kind of non-descriptive like, location between uh, the two pyramids. And I, I wondered about that. But anyway, so there was Naxos, Caracol, Taishan. Then there was Sedona in North America, Sedona, mm-hmm. which is in Arizona. Yeah. Um, High Brazil, which we've already mentioned. And the Nazca coordinates, where the lines are, yeah. the Nazca lines, and uh, that's one of the most important ones because a lot of information came out with the connection between Nazca and Giza. Well, anyway, after looking at these on Google Earth um, that same week, I thought I wanted to see them all together on a map projection of the Earth, which you would find in Google Maps. Yeah, you'd get. You get all of them. You could see all of them on the map projection of the Earth in Google Maps. Now, at that time, 
Google Maps was different. You could you could have a close up. You could zoom in on the landscape. Hmm. You know, on a, on a as I said, on a two D map projection of the Earth. Well, you can't do that now. Oh, can't you? Why did they, they stop that then? I don't know. I don't know. They just changed the program, and I think it was round about. 2014 when they first did that. So I only had a kind of window, hmm. a frame, a window frame. I didn't actually realise it stopped all that. Oh. Yeah, because I started looking at this in 2011. I only had a window frame of about, I don't know, three, four years to actually find this information hmm. that I'm going to talk about. So anyway, after looking everything on uh, this 2D map projection of the Earth, I wondered about... I wondered why he was telling me about 23.5 degrees, why he said he was having dreams about that. And, of course, a lot of my research before I began work on the coordinates was about finding these references to the angle 23.5 in, in a lot of arts, uh, a lot of uh, different uh, sources throughout history. And so I started looking at the angles between the coordinates on this 2D map projection of the Earth. And I found the 23.5 degrees between Nazca and Giza. I mean, you wouldn't get this on a spherical on the spherical globe. You know, you'd have to use uh, azimuth angles. Hmm. Um, but on this 2D map projection of the Earth, you get a straight 23.5 degrees. And I thought that's strange. And then I, I thought about Jim, and I thought, you know, is he pulling my leg? Here? You know, is he yanking my chain, as they say in America? You know, um, yeah, trying you out, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he devise this because he already knew that I'd been working on this angle? And and then I found another angle from uh, Nazca to Caracol, which is another 23.5 degrees, but it's perpendicular to the first one, you know, uh, like a 90 degrees away from the, the first one. And then I found all these other angles. <laughs> but what they were, they were all just three angles. They were 23.5 degrees, 11.75, which is half of 23.5. And 51, the 51 angle was between Nazca and High Brazil. And that's the, that would, anyone would have identified that with the side angle of the Great Pyramid, even though it's 51.84 degrees. I mean, 51 would uh, identify it, you know, they'd recognize it. Mm. So, and then I realized that all these angles between the coordinates drew up a, a 2D cross section picture of the great pyramid and these same angles are pointing inside the pyramid from these coordinates to show the two chambers the two internal chambers that we know of and a, but a third chamber above the king's chamber that we don't know about i mean it's not publicly known hmm. it, it may be known by a few people they may know about that cham chamber it may have been um breached but we don't know about it. You know, the general public don't know about that chamber. And it's pointing to this other chamber, this third chamber. And um, also, the, the, the coordinates are pointing to the Azores in the Atlantic, near the seven islands of the Azores. Well, there's nine of them, actually, but there's seven that are kind of grouped together. And I thought that's strange, because the Nax Naxos coordinates that came up in the code, um, which is the island of Naxos in Greece... If you was to mirror those coordinates and put west on the longitude coordinates instead of east, it would take you across the Greenwich Meridian to the west, and it would target a, a point that's just in between in between St. 
uh, Santa Maria Island and Sao Miguel Island, which is in the Azores. So it's pointing to the Azores again. Mm. In fact, I found lots of these references from the code that are pointing to the Azores. There must be several references to the Azores. Um, the biggest one being the Sphinx, but I'll get onto that later. So um, I thought, wow, this is something really kind of strange because um, it's drawing up an image of the Great Pyramid. On, and it's what it is, it's centralised on the Greenwich Meridian and the equator. And the equator, where the intersection point of the Greenwich Meridian and equator is, is where the Queen's Chamber would be inside the Great Pyramid, if you look at it in cross-section. Hmm. And I thought, no, this is... This is beyond coincidence, way beyond coincidence. I mean, it's drawing up the Great Pyramid with using just three angles. Um, and I realised that this was far beyond what Jim Penniston would have understood, I'm sure. You know, mm. with the other things that I started finding as well, there was no way Jim Penniston could have done this. He could not have devised it. And knowing Jim now, and I've known him for more than 11 years now, um, you know, Egypt wouldn't have the patience to do something like this. No, just wouldn't have the patience. Yeah, he's not he's not lived and breathed this stuff like I have. You know. Hmm. Hmm. No, I know when I spoke to him about it, he said, "Oh, figures." He said, "Oh, I'm to hell with it. I can't. You know, I just can't be bothered with it all." He said, you "Need to speak to Gary about all that." <laughs> yeah. You know. So anyway, so this angle turns up in the code, okay, and there must be a reason for it. Um. Now I have to go back to the research I was doing before I got involved with the code, and that was from about 2001 when I first started finding these references to the uh, Saxis applicacy angle. And as I said, I first found it in a painting by Nicholas Poussin, you know, 17th century. Mm. And it was actually his self-portrait, I think it was 1650. And uh, there's an explicit 23.5 degree angle in there. What it is, is is shown with his ring, which is a pyramid stone ring, four-sided pyramid stone ring. And if you draw the, if you plot the angle from that ring to a painting that's stood behind him, which is of a goddess with a tiara, with a, a an all-seeing eye in the centre. If you plot the angle from that ring to the all-seeing eye, it's 23.5 exactly. Wow. <laughs> and that. That's the connection between the pyramid and the all-seeing eye, what you, what you find on the $1 bill, mm. you know, with the capstone, you know, with the eye and the capstone. And actually, when you look at the $1 bill, you look at that image on the $1 bill, you find that the, the right side of the pyramid is actually 23.5. So there's these connections, okay? Uh, so that was one of the first I found. And then I started finding in other paintings, as I said, you know, the, all these linear objects uh, that are painted in in these images in these and it, it also the theme is important the theme of what the painting is about is important and they're at these angles uh so i thought well this is a phenomenon you know it's kind of passed under the radar with a lot of people no one really knew about this mm. or no one has known about it because i did look up on the internet to see if anybody was uh, putting forward the same findings you know theorizing about it and no one was mm. in fact I found that, yes, they, they had been noticed by somebody, and this was um, a guy named Frank C. Higgins, uh, writing in 1919 in a book called um, Ancient Freemasonry, because he was a 32nd degree Mason. 
he shows examples of these references to the angle of the Earth's obliquity um, in a lot of ancient sources. Okay, and maybe I'm getting beyond myself here because what I wanted to say was while I was looking at these references, while I was researching into them and trying to find out why they painted that angle uh, or encoded it in the paintings, I was in touch with Scott Crichton because we we would usually frequent the uh, Graham Hancock uh, forum on his website, mm. you know, and um, engage in discussions on there. And uh, he was absolutely kind of fascinated by these references to the Earth's axis. And it was later on that he, he said, let's do a book together. You know, I've got some uh, information that might actually go along with what you're saying about these references. Now, his theory on it was, is that the church... Um, he says the reason why they encoded these angles in the painting is because the church, you know, enforced the doctrine, the geocentric doctrine. It was introduced by Claudius Ptolemy in the second century AD, uh, that the earth being God's creation was perfect, uh, that it was fixed and did not move and was perfectly upright with the sun, planets and stars revolving around it. You know, it wasn't tilted. Mm. And he said that maybe the scientists of the day, and because they would be seen as heretics if they ever talked about the heliocentric, um, uh, you know, picture of the of the sun being at the centre of the solar system and the Earth going around mm, the sun, mm. if they ever mentioned that, they would be seen as heretics. And there must have been a group of people like that who were who knew about the Earth's condition of it being tilted at 23.5 degrees, and it was kind of a tradition with them, that they encoded this angle in the paintings as a kind of way of putting two fingers up at the church, you know what I mean? Mm, mm. So, um, and saying that this is the real, this is the scientific uh, data that we have about the condition of the Earth. You know, we know that it's tilted, and it's not like what the uh, the church is saying. Um, so anyway... I thought that was a good idea. I thought, well, actually, it's a good theory and it kind of fits. It's logical, what, what Scott Crichton was saying. Uh, and that might explain the reason why these 23.5 angles are referenced in these paintings. You know, it was a way of encoding information. And they didn't want to be seen as heretics, so they had to kind of do it in secret, you know, kind of communicate it to people, other mm. initiates, into this knowledge, you know, by through, you know, just encoding it. So... I thought it was a good idea, you know, good theory that Scott came, Scott came up with. But then I thought about Frank C. Higgins, which I later found, you know, his book, Ancient Freemasonry. And I thought he found references to the Earth's axis angle going way back before the church. He found these amulets, um, which were keystones, which became the keystone in Freemasonry. And he said that the sides were angled at 11.75, which is half of 23.5. So the two sides at 11.75 would make an angle of 23.5. He also found keystones, which were 47 degrees, which is two times 23.5. And lots of references to the 23.5 angle. And these were in, and these amulets, he said, were like over 7,000 years old. So this is way, way back beyond, you know, before the church. Mm. And I said, there must be, another explanation for this you know and then i started finding this angle in in religious paintings and i found it with um jesus christ these images of jesus christ carrying the, the cross the crucifixion cross on his way to Golgotha to be, to be 
crucified. Um, and these crosses, which he's carrying or on his shoulder or in, in all ways, how he's kind of carrying this cross to this place, they're all at the angle of 23.5 degrees. So, <laughs> so a reason why, why would that be? You know, maybe, yeah, you know, what Scott Crichton's saying, that could be, you know, you could apply it to that. But then I look back, because I knew about, you know, the uh, ancient Egyptian myth of Osiris, the god Osiris, the god, you know, the god of the dead, the god of the underworld. And he was also um, a fertility god and also uh, a vegetation god. And what they would do, there was a ceremony called the Raising of the Jed Column. And uh, this, was, this was during the time of the spring equinox, um, which is the only time in the year when the earth is at the same conditions as if it was upright, you know, and not tilted. So there's only two days in the year when the earth kind of uh, meets the same conditions as, you know, of equal day and night and temperate weather. And this is on the equinoxes and his Jed column, which it, what, what it is, is his backbone. It's, you know, which the scholars have said, you know, the Jed column represents his backbone and spine, spinal column. And his backbone, Osiris, is kind of raised upright, you know, on these uh, on these dates of the equinox of the spring equinox. And I thought, well, that's what this is about Jesus Christ, you know, carrying a cross at 23.5 degrees. He is modelled on Osiris or his son Horus, uh, Osiris' mm. son Horus, who is a reincarnation of Osiris. And it's actually Horus who, who resurrects Osiris. And he's, he's, um, he takes on the sins of the world and he's nailed to the cross and with the cross he's raised upright. And that's where he enters the heavenly kingdom. So I thought, well, what this is all about, it's a, it's a huge missing piece of the whole Messiah mythos. That what it is, is the saviour, is the Messiah, the saviour. But what his role is, is bringing the Earth's axis back to a vertical position. OK. And when I say back to a vertical position, it then came to me after doing a lot more research. It came to me that there was this belief that the Earth should be upright and not tilted hmm. that that the uh, tilted earth is a, a reflection of an imbalance in human consciousness and and that there was this belief that all sin kind of came from that you know uh, it was related to the earth being tilted imbalanced and and you realize that when you find these references to the angle 23.5 they're in paintings that have themes about war conflict battles, uh, murder, um, you know, there's like knives at the angle of 23.5 degrees. Hmm. And you find that all kinds of conflict that, that, that you find these angles in. Not just the angle, not just the paintings of Jesus Christ, but a lot of other religious paintings. Uh, Isaac, for instance, you know, who's told by God to murder his son or to sacrifice his son. And then he stops at the last minute. But you find these paintings of his dagger where he's about to, you know, knife his son, cut his throat, it's at the angle of 23.5 degrees. Oh. So anything to do with conflict, uh, you know, violence, war, uh, anything of that nature, it, there you find these 23.5 degree angles. And what this is, it's telling us 
that the Earth's tilt, which a lot of people would say, well, we need the seasons. The Earth being tilted at 23.5 is a, a reflection of this imbalance in human consciousness, which is why we have all this, I don't know, all, why we have conflicts, why we have duality, uh, and why we are, you know, backing one thing against another and that kind of thing. And there's mm. this duality in it. As you say, I mean, all, all those, all those, they couldn't have been sort of just accidental or incidental, could they? Something must have been going on there to actually, you know, yeah. a, a purposeful, a, a pur purposeful uh, measurement. Like you say, it, it's, oh, it's, it's bloody fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I know. This, what I'm saying is, is that I don't have to believe in this myself to, to know that these exist, hmm. that these references to the angle exist. I don't have to believe what they believe which is that the angle should, you know, that the sorry, the earth should be upright and not tilted. But then I started looking into what would the conditions of the earth be like if the earth was actually upright? And I found that it'd be like a Garden of Eden paradise. I mean, a lot of geophysicists and, and scientists have said that, no, we need the we need the seasons. Everything's balanced with the seasons. But there's a lot of people and a lot of um scholars as well saying that if the earth was upright um, at certain latitudes it'd be like a continual springtime it would be temperate weather all year round and everything would be growing and uh, fertility would be at all-time high um, and there would be no no winter season where everything halts and dies off you know the vegetation dies off mm. um, you know it'd be continual springtime it'd be like the garden of eden and then then you hear about the fall of man and then you find that, you know, that might be associated with the earth having been tilted from an upright position or almost upright position. And, and then you find a lot of um, references to the earth actually having been upright at one time. Hmm. Um, there's books like Cataclysm by Alan and Delay, two geoscientists who found evidence that the earth was upright at one time. And it was tilted suddenly due to what they say was a comet. Um, I don't know, really. I mean, it's, it's like you can't really quite put your finger on it. You know, there, there's a lot of these sources saying that the Earth was probably upright at one time and they've got evidence for it. But I can't find anything that's definitive, you know, that they say exactly shows of that. Hmm. Um, so what I'm saying is, is that there is this belief that the Earth should be upright that that being tilted is an unnatural condition even the ancient greeks said that um and that it may have been upright at one time and suddenly tilted and that was the fall of man and the, yeah. and the fall away from the garden of eden and i mean does this point to the fact that all the world of prehistoric animals got um wiped out because they suddenly got yeah. wiped out by the body you know, as far as we know yeah, mammoths found with uh, food still in their stomachs. They've mm. just digested. They've just eaten, and they found that they've frozen. And, it's, and it could only really be a pole shift or like... Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's, a good, that's, that's a really good example of that because um, it would seem to indicate that the, the prehistoric animals were living in like jungle, um, situ yeah, like jungle environments, wouldn't they? It, it would seem. Yeah. Yeah, but as I said, I've been researching into this now since 2020, uh, sorry, since 2001. Uh, that's over 20 years ago now. Mm. And, um, 
you know, and in that time, uh, you know, there's, there's just all this data that, that shows what I'm saying is right, but I can't quite prove that the earth was upright at one time. There's, as I said, there's a lot of books out there saying, you know, I've got evidence of it. Um, and there was a book, uh, by, called Arctos, titled Arctos by Jocelyn Godwin, um, which I thought was really kind of persuasive. And uh, I actually talked to Justin Godwin. I've got in touch with him and uh, we corresponded. And he said, look, just keep it alive. Just keep the debate alive. He says, I don't know myself if the earth was ever upright. But what you're telling me about these 23.5 degree references, he says, um, it shows that there was some kind of belief in it. Mm. And, uh, but as I said, all this has passed under the radar and no one has picked up on this. And I'm perhaps the first one to pick up on this since Frank C. Higgins did in 1919. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this 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 whole scenario um, of what all this might mean, the the scenario is is that maybe there was a cataclysm in the past that upended the Earth. It may have something to do with the uh, Atlantis story by Plato. Um, And I found also that there's Paul Laviolette, who's uh, a PhD who uh, says that the galactic centre was the cause of the cataclysm in the past, that energy and matter being spewed from the galactic centre when it reached the solar system and now Earth caused the sun to, you know, there was these kind of uh, solar uh, plasma outbursts which caused all kinds of destruction with the Earth. And that that may have been one of the causes so, um, you know, there, there are theories out there that kind of you think, yeah, that could apply to what I've been finding with these references. But you can't quite pin it down, do you know what I'm saying? Mm, absolutely. And I think the biggest question is then, is why did Jim start coming up with these figures, uh, which actually threw you together? And why would he be coming up with those figures? Is it something to do with the binary codes that he was having downloads for? Yeah, because, uh, as I said, I found the 23.5 angle in, in between the coordinates in the code, as I said, on a map projection of the Earth, it's all there. That, mm. that was the initial information I found. Uh, and I found all that within the first year of actually looking at the code, studying it. Yeah. Now, um, I, think, I think the point I'm trying to make is Jim would have absolutely no way of knowing that at all, at all uh, with, no. with the binary that he's, he was writing down. Um, I don't think so. I mean, there are, there are questions about... You know, did Jim actually write that down at the right time? You know, in 1980. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it points. I think the evidence that I've seen it does point to the fact that he did. You know, and yeah. uh, to be honest, and I, I can't believe that he would know about writing down uh, binary figures and knowing exactly what it's all going to um, can end up as. You know, in, to, in today's world, yeah. sort of thing. You know, it's um, well. The crux of the whole thing is, which is what we're leading up to, which is what I want to talk about, and we have discussed this, David, mm. because we, you know, we've had offline discussions, um, is that what people who are sceptical about the code should face is, and this is a fact, is that the code authenticates itself, okay? And it authenticates itself by uh, predicting a 12-digit number a number that has nine decimal places to it, which was 
um, it was a, a constant. It's called the fine structure constant. And it was predicted that the new determination, which we have now, which was uh, determined in 2018, it predicted it 38 years in the future. Hmm. And actually 39, when you think about when it was actually published, because it was published in 2019, it was, it was determined at the end of 2018, almost uh, to the day when the incident, the Rendlesham incident happened. So that's like 38 years later, but then published the year, the year after. Hmm. Uh, but that's something I'm working towards, you know, in this discussion. And really, that's something they've got to face, that there's no way anybody could have known about it. There's no, there's no way Jim Pennison could have known. No one in our timeline could have known about this 12-digit number that's predicted by the code back in 1980. Hmm. Well, I guess that even includes you. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I found it, but it's the, it the code that hmm. led me to it. Okay, so it's predicted this 12-digit number. I mean, that's twice as many numbers as you get with a lottery. You know, yeah. so I mean, the, the odds against is off the scale. And this is something that the skeptics will have to deal with, you know, because the facts are there. I've laid out all the facts. Some of it was placed in the last chapter of the book, you know, the Rendlesham Enigma with Jim Penniston. Um, but look, I'll get onto that in a moment. What I want to say as a kind of conclusive kind of statement to this 23.5 degree stuff I was finding is that. Yes, it turns up in the code. Now, why? Why does it turn up in the code? Is it because we're being told that this cataclysm that happened in the past is a recurring pattern? You know, because what the code does do as well, it points to, um, at Giza, it points to a line. The line on which the, the pyramids, the three large pyramids are aligned to, the southwest, sorry, the southeast corners are aligned to it. They, G1, the Great Pyramid, and G3 in the south, the smallest pyramid, both their southeast corners are touching that line. Now, G2, the one in the centre, that's kind of offset from the line a little bit. But they're touching this line, and this is how the line becomes visible. You know, it's a, an abstract line. I mean, it's not mm. a line that's been built with anything, but it's you, you see the line. It becomes visible when you look at the lines of... Sorry, when you look at the the pyramids and the way they're aligned to this line. And also, when you look at this line during the winter solstice, the shadows that the pyramids form show this line. It comes, it comes, to, comes to life. Mm. You see this line explicitly. Now, that line that the coordinates have been pointing to, which are the Giza coordinates that were found in a code message, are pointing to is a timeline, is a processional cycle timeline. So what it does, it encodes... Um, a time, a, a processional timeline, a kind of, um, what do you call it, a clock, like a like a pendulum clock, because you measure it one way and then you measure it back the, in the opposite direction. Now this line is two one sixty royal cubits in length, and it's between these two subsidiary pyramids. This line stretches between these two subsidiary pyramids, and it's exactly twenty. It would have been two thousand one sixty raw cubits in length now that means that that line is one sixth the scale of what it should be now the reason why it's one sixth the scale is because you know it's practical it would be two it'd be miles in length 
mm. if uh, if you if you made it six times the size. But it's as I said, it's scaled down one sixth, and the reason why is because it's really twelve nine. You're supposed to be measured in twelve nine sixty years, so it's twelve nine sixty years one way, and twelve nine sixty years the other, which totals twenty five nine twenty, which is the processional cycle in years, according to the ancient estimate. All right. So really, what this is, as I said. This line is a processional pendulum clock timeline. And you can actually find specific dates on that timeline by measuring the roll qubits, measuring the lengths in meters, then then um, turning them into roll qubits, and then multiplying that, measure, uh, that roll qubit measurement by six. And then you get the year, the date, on that timeline, you know, and you can do that anywhere along the timeline. You can find these specific dates. And um, what comes up is that there is one specific date, uh, and that's 8100 in the future, 8100 AD in the future, which is part of the actually Rendlesham message. It's in the first line of the rest Rendlesham code message, 8100, and um, that's in the future, but. In the past, at that same point on the timeline, if you measure the other way, it would be 3100 BC, which is when the first dynastic period of Egypt began. Mm. Um, so, as I said, you can find these specific dates. And I'm thinking that perhaps that point on the timeline is a cataclysm period. You know, so it's pointing to a cataclysm period in within the processional cycle on that Giza diagonal timeline. And that's what the coordinates have pointed to. They pointed to this timeline, which was encoded by whoever constructed Giza. Uh, and this is really what the Giza uh, complex is all about. It's all been built around this Giza processional timeline. And the coordinates from the code have pointed this out. It's something that me and Scott Crichton were already coming to, you know, we were coming to this conclusion that, that, that there was this processional timeline at Giza, but the coordinates from the code specifies it, you know, more clearly. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I think that maybe these uh, references to the angle of 23.5 have something to do with a cat past clas cataclysm that could happen again in the future. Mm. And that's why, and I, I really don't want to be a catastrophist, you know, being a, a prophet of doom, or something <laughs> with this, but it seems that that's what. But it seems that the code wants us to acknowledge this, you know, mm, mm. Uh, that these that this does happen, and it, it's a kind of it's uh, it happens. It's a recurring pattern. It comes around again, and now it may be like so far off into the future that why tell us now? Um, I still don't know why we're being told now, but maybe because we need enough time to prepare for it. I don't know. But, you know, Jim said that this code may have been passed back to us from the future. It may be sent back into, uh, you know, I don't know, in 1980. And the reason being is, is that we decipher this code. What we find out about it prepares for the future because maybe that may have already happened in the future. You see? Yeah, yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. Actually, in fact, I, I, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you say what what you're going to say a bit later because I know what you've said to me, <laughs> but I don't want to spoil it. And because um, yeah. I mean, you know, Jim's never really thought this was aliens, has he? 
No, no, he's he. Uh, what I mean, he's got an open mind, like I have. He's mm. got an open mind about it. Um, he wouldn't rule it out entirely, but his feeling has always been, and it comes from his hypnosis sessions as well, that whatever this intelligence is, it's from the future. Um, or it's an intelligence that is able to manipulate time. It, it's it's from a, a, I don't know, a domain that's out of our, that's outside our timeline. Yeah, and it's a interdimensional thing, yeah. Yeah, and it could be that, yeah. And well, it could be affecting yeah. them. I mean, whatever happens in this dimension probably could, could affect them, maybe. That's what it, you know, that's the way I yeah, think of some never, things. Like me, he's never been keen on the terrestri- you know, extraterrestrial hypothesis. Um, you know, that there's all these alien uh, civilizations that are visiting our Earth, you know, uh, and because of the multitude of signs and the regularity of the signs, you'd think they'd be coming here all the time. Yeah. They'd be traveling like light years to get here. Or if they're able to bend space and time, they're able to do it. But then again, what is the reason? Why are they coming here? You mm. know? Mm. Um, so, I don't know. I think that what this is, this intelligence is kind of um, separated by dimensions. They're in the same... They're in the same space, but separated by frequencies or, you know, I think that may be what time is all about. It's got something to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think really the big thing about aliens, um, there was a big spanner in the works with the book Left at Eastgate, wasn't there, which is set, yeah. us, set us all right, right down the alien path uh, with things landed in Cape yeah. Green, all that sort of um what we know now is rubbish. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I, I suspend belief on almost everything I learn. You know, I I won't... I'll, you see, look, put it this way, and I've always used this analogy. You know, you, you're in a circular room. You're at the centre of this circular room. And there's all these doorways leading off from this circular room. And down, if you open these doors, they all lead down into tunnels, lead into tunnels, which are tunnels of, like, belief. You know, they're, they're belief tunnels. Mm. And you can open a door, you can look down, and you can know what the belief is about, but don't ever walk down those tunnels because you'll get lost. <laughs> yeah. So you stay centred. You stay centred in this central room where all these beliefs are kind of leading off from. You're at the centre. Yeah. And it's just to remain centred and kind of neutral to it. You know, neutral to all these things that people try to get you to believe you know they all want you to believe what they believe and uh it's nonsense yeah a lot of it yeah it's a good analogy i must say i i mean i i, I kind of steer off of that because i've actually seen a ufo of my own back in the mid 60s so and I, yeah. I couldn't explain what it was it was a big orange thing um yeah so whatever that was i don't I mean maybe that was people from the future i don't know <laughs> But uh, as I yeah. say, you, you can't actually just say it was aliens, can you? I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I've seen one. I, I remember we were at a barbecue and um, looked up in the sky and there was this stationary kind of silver object. And it wasn't a satellite or anything. It was just stationary. It was there for a good 20 minutes mm. and then it just faded away. And no one could explain it. I mean, I couldn't. So, uh, and it wasn't a blip, it wasn't a balloon or anything. It was just stationary. And it was just above us. Um, but look, you know, I won't, it's like what I'm telling you now about these references to the angle, that they are there, they're in the paintings, but, and there is this belief, I'm sure that, you know, the earth should be upright, but I'm not going to, you know, make the decision to believe, I'm not going to believe it. I need more, 
I need more data. I need to still research it mm. to find something that actually really convinces me what they're trying to say. You know, and we can have all these um, speculations about it. And there's nothing wrong with speculating, but I'm I'm always I'm always interested in the facts. That's what I'm. That's what my research is about: is determining the facts. Yeah. Well, I can say that there was, there was a big um, Freemason and Masonic uh, influence way back in the past, wasn't there? Um, all these secret societies and things like that, which uh, it seems like a lot of these people were um, connected to. Um, yeah. even, even some of the later ones, uh, we, yeah, we've heard about Audius Huxley and um, H.G. Wells. Yeah, and they, were all supposed, they were all supposed to be um, in, in the Freemasons. Um, well, yeah, but, over the time that I've been interested in all these subjects i've read all that stuff you know like oldest huxley um uh, the teachings of all ages by um you know what's his i can't remember his name now but the freemason hmm. um yeah I've, I've gone through a lot of you know literature um i was hungry for all that stuff because i had an experience back in 93 which just you know it was like a rebirth for me and it just changed me and i I wanted, I was hungry to read anything I could get my hands on. So I've gone through all that. But, you know, I've got no beliefs as such, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, so with, with, as far as religion goes, I'm not religious at all, you know. But um, I do, I am a spirit, I do believe in spirit. So I don't know if you, you believe in all that sort of thing, but... Um, the, yeah, the, I know. I am. I am. I am spiritual. I am spiritually inclined because, as I said, I had this experience in '93. Um, but I'm not going to get tricked into believing something that's not factual. You know, it's mm. just, that you're just making up in your mind. You know, uh, when people say talk about faith, you know, faith in what? For Christ's sake! It's like <laughs> for Christ's sake, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was brought up to say those sort of things. I used to hear from everyone around me, but. <laughs> I, what, what I'm saying is faith is faith faith in what you know there's no it could either be true or false you know if you put your faith in something you're not really putting your faith in the facts hmm. you know you've got to find out the facts yeah absolutely so, um, yeah so where are we now we want to get on to the uh, what I was talking about earlier about the fine structure constant yeah yeah, I don't know if I throw you off the path here. Yeah, just... <laughs> and the reason, the reason why I want to talk about that is because, as I said, that's the way the code authenticates itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, there, there might not be anything, you know, that that connects to the fine structure constant. Uh, it's, but it's just using it to authenticate itself, you know. So I'll, I'll take you through it. As, as best I can, you know, because it's difficult to communicate this because you're talking about mathematics. Mm. People hate math. I did when I was at school. Um, but when you actually get into it, um, it, it's something that math is actually beautiful, you know, the way things come together with mathematics. So you're listening here, get your pens and papers ready. <laughs> yeah, so the code, right, there's two, actually three, there's three sets of coordinates in the code two of them that give this explicitly and the third kind of like non-direct but these coordinates in the code they um they point to a latitude okay that was passing through geezer in 1980 
which was the year when the code appeared, you know, was Jim Penniston received it on Boxing Day morning, by the way, uh, 1980. And, and really, I see it as the gift that keeps on giving. Mm. It's like a Christmas gift. Mm. Yeah, it was we'll a bit. Yeah. Even though it's Boxing Day and um, it's the day after. Well, actually, the incident began on Christmas Day. It began on Christmas Day evening. Yeah, well, I mean, when you yeah, think about it, in America, it was still would have been Christmas, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been, yeah so, it been like six to eight hours behind. So, in actual yeah. fact, you, you still would have been in the middle middle of the day. Yeah. So, um, as I said, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Okay. And it's still, and I'm still finding things with it now. Uh, I, you know, just the other day, I found something that I thought, well, that kind of goes along with what I've been saying. But anyway, so there's two sets of coordinates that give a direct um, line to this pointing out this um, latitude running through Giza in 1980. When I say in 1980, you have to take in the consider, uh, you have to consider the, uh, the, the slow tectonic plate motion uh, of, of the African plate on which Giza is situated. And it's been like, it's been traveling, it's been, sorry, it's been moving in a northeast direction at 51.46 azimuth degrees over the last hundred million years. Uh, so it's kind of consistent. Mm. And the uh, and, the, and the rate of speed, the, the actual um, velocity is 2.15 centimetres a year. So you've got to take that into consideration when you're looking at the coordinates of specific kind of key points on the monuments. Um, it's the land that is moving. And the coordinates have to change in accordance with the movement, you see. And the GPS coordinates of, um, the GPS coordinates, what is it? W84, WS84, uh, since 1984. Um, they update it every few years or maybe even every year to, um, accommodate this movement of the, of the place of the earth. So the African plate, as I said, on which Giza is situated, moves at a rate of 20, uh, sorry, 2.15 centimetres a year and in the northeast direction of 51.46 azimuth. Now, I found all this out by using tectonic plate motion calculators. Um, the best ones I could find anyway, the most reliable ones. So I, using the, uh, using the Glen Dash Foundation survey point maps of Giza, which give the uh, GPS coordinates of each of the key points of the pyramids, uh, the corners, each of the corners, and also the Sphinx in 2018. I'm able to take those coordinates, those specific coordinates that were found by Glenn Dash, and I can project them back to 1980 using this Vincenzi distance calculator, which is another reliable calculator. And I think it, it's... it's um, I mean, it's down to, you can find things down to like 0.5 millimeters. You know, it's that accurate. Mm. You know, between certain coordinates. If you were to measure the distance between certain coordinates, um, then, you know, the accuracy is down to like 0.5 millimeters. Mm. So I can project those coordinates back to 1980. So in 1980, there was this latitude passing through Giza, and this latitude. It divides the 
longitude distance, the, the north-south distance between the centre of the Great Pyramid and the centre of uh, the Third Pyramid, G3, it divides that distance into the five ratio proportions of 1 and 0.618. This is the latitude that was passing. I mean, the numbers in that latitude, of that latitude that divides this distance between the two, those two pyramids into phi ratio 1 and 0.618. I mean, that in itself is a, is a major discovery that the pyramids are, were sighted and constructed to the phi ratio. Mm. But this also, I mean, that what I just told you is something I discovered by using the code. It points to that. So anyway, points to this latitude, and the numbers in that latitude are 29.9766248. You know, I can memorise numbers, which is why I'm pretty good at math. I'm able to memorise numbers like phone numbers. And um, and that's how I am with the constants as well, the universal constants like pi, phi, e, uh, and the phi structure constant. I can memorise those numbers and calculate things and juggle the numbers around and I'll come up with discoveries with these numbers. So anyway, that latitude, which, as I've said, divides the, uh, the distance into, phi, into the phi ratio, how the pyramids are sighted and constructed, that latitude passing through 1980 is also uh, 320 royal cubits from the base, the south base of G1, which is the Great Pyramid. So it's 320 royal cubits south of that south base of the Great Pyramid. And it's 70 royal cubits from the, the north base of G2, the second pyramid. So there's these numbers, 320 and 70, all right? Now, when you take the number of the latitude that's passing through, these are in 1980, that, and I call it the golden cut latitude because, as I said, it divides uh, the length, the distance into fire, the fire ratio, the golden cut. Um, when you take the number 29.9766248 and you multiply by 320 and then you divide the result by 70, you get the reciprocal number of the fine structure constant that was determined in 2018. And it's a 12 digit number. You get the exact number to 12 digits to nine decimal places. Hmm. That was later determined in 2018, which was 38 years later. So that's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. The number itself, and I will reel it out. It's it's one three seven point oh three five nine 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 zero eight, and that's a number that comes up by just multiplying the numbers in that latitude by three twenty, and dividing by seventy, and that's what comes up. So, and as I said, there's two sets of coordinates that point, actually three sets of coordinates that point to this latitude going through Giza in 1980. And you find out that this golden cut latitude is 320 royal cubits from the south base of G1 and 70 royal cubits from the north base of G2. And you use those numbers to calculate the numbers in the latitude and you come up with a reciprocal number of the fine structure constant to 12 digits.
Well, hope everyone followed that out there. <laughs> now, that, that, now, unless people look, I mean, me saying that, what does it matter? You know, it's like people they need to research this themselves. They need to look yeah. at this themselves. They need to check it all. Like, like that. in fact, that's one of the things I've done is I've laid it all out for people to check for themselves. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, now, just read that. Read that number out again, Gary. That's one three seven point zero three nine 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 zero eight. Was it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Just in case yeah, anyone missed that. One three seven point oh three five nine 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 zero eight. Oh, I missed a five out. That's no, the, actually yeah. zero eight four zero eight four. Sorry, zero eight four. Right. And yep. that's the number that was determined in tw in December twenty eighteen. Uh, and then published in 2019. And the, and the strange thing about this is, is that I'd already found this latitude, okay, this golden cut latitude via the coordinates and the code. But you see, when I found, when I found this latitude and I was able to work this out, um, this was at the end of 2018, actually when the, they made the new determination, but I wasn't aware of the new determination. Mm. I was only aware of determination that had been made in uh, two, uh, 2014 because it's every four years that they make a new determination so i was only aware of the 214 determination and the last three digits of that number was 139 you know 137.0359991391 okay and and so it didn't come to uh the number of decimal places that you know, I thought it would, you know, I, I thought it only stopped at a certain number of decimal places because of it. And and it was when I thought of looking at um, Wikipedia to see, you know, on the page, uh, the, the fine structure constant, to see if the new determination had been made. And this was while I was writing the last chapter of the book that I found that they, the new determination was made and the last three digits was 084, which is what comes up. In the, yeah. from the coordinates from that golden the golden cut latitude coordinates you know it's what generates that number that and those last three digits that's when i knew that this was this authenticated the code and that you know the code was authentic mm. now, i think you actually do reference that at the end of the book don't you, I know you yeah but for me but for me to find this new determination at the very same time that i'm writing about it mm. And that's the reason why the book was delayed, because I needed to put that information, that new data into the book to mm. show that mm. this is what the uh, this is what the code predicted, you know. Yeah, so, I remember when we was all eagerly waiting for it and we kept on asking Jim, when's it coming out? <laughs> yeah, and I had to, I delayed it because I needed to add that information to the chapter, the last chapter. Um, now, you know, people ask, what is the fine structure constant? You know, you need to, they need to know what the fine structure constant is before they kind of look into all this. And basically, um, it's alpha, it's called alpha as well. And it shows up in the description of the fine structure of atomic spectra. Okay, it is referred to also as the coupling constant because it is also a measure of the strength of the electromagnetic force that governs our like electrically charged ele elementary particles and light photons that interact, right? Um, 
is also described as the ratio of the square of the charge on the electron divided by Planck's constant and the speed of light. Right now, <laughs> now that's just going to go over people's heads, all right? But one could think of it, you know, in this simple way. Like it, it's really the um, sum of certain fundamental constants of nature, and it allows life to exist on our planet. And you could think of it as the fingerprint or DNA of each wavelength of life. Okay. And um, I was going to say, it's also considered the most fundamental of all mathematical constants in that it is a dimensionless pure number and not subject to our own Earth-based measuring systems. If the true number of the alpha constant, which we are still in the process of determining precisely, was altered ever so slightly, you know, if you take one number away, we in our reality would not exist, you know. Alpha, the fine structure constant, actually li literally holds everything together. So I'm going to read out this this um, quote. Um, okay, this guy, Michael Brooks, he, he gives this quote. He says that change this number, change the fine structure constant number by a smidgen, and you can change the universe. Increase it too much, and protons repel each other so strongly that small atomic nuclei can't hold together. Go a bit further and nuclear fission, fusion, sorry, nuclear fusion factories within stars grind to a halt and can no longer produce carbon. The element on which life is based, right? Make alpha much smaller and molecular bonds fall apart at lower temperatures, altering many processes essential to life. So uh, that's why the fine structure constant is significant, it's important. And, and it's reason why it would most likely be used in, um, a message from uh, advanced civilization. And as uh, Carl Sagan says, and here's a quote from Carl Sagan from page 205 from his book, The Cosmic Connection, which was uh, published in 1973. He says, there is only one category of legend that would be convincing. When information is contained in the legend that could not possibly have been generated by the civilization that created the legend, if for example, a number transmitted from thousands of years ago as wholly turns out to be the nuclear fine structure constant. This would be a case worthy of some considerable attention. All right. And he, he says from, uh, from a civilization that could not have created it, um, and that civilization, if we look at Giza, that would be the ancient Egyptian civilization, and that number of the fine, the reciprocal number of the fine structure constant comes up in the latitude that passed through Giza in 1980. Dividing, dividing the distance between the pyramids into, into the phi ratio. So how about that? Yeah, mind blowing. <laughs> now, so that was way, that was in beyond the, beyond, yeah, before the Rendlesham event as well. There's a lot of things that come up later that the Rendlesham code um, as makes reference to that hmm. uh, comes up you know past 1980 in the years you know later than 1980 hmm. and I mean look look the thing is and this is something else that's really important to get across is that I couldn't decipher the code uh, until I couldn't decipher the code until I found the, the most um, accurate and reliable survey maps of Giza. At the time when the codes surfaced in 1980, 
there was no reliable maps of Giza. There was no GPS coordinates <laughs> that you could rely on. And those, all that data only become available in 2018, really. Yeah, that's a good started, point. It started, yeah. it started to become available uh, around about 2014. Um, and also the coordinates, the, the, co the whole GPS coordinate system. That, that didn't come into being until 1984. You know, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, these things all came to, came to be after 1980, but you would need those tools, uh, those online tools and programs to be able to decipher the code. So, and that's something that people don't realize. And they say, and there's a lot of people who say, well, why did Jim Penniston wait 30 years before he actually you know, made the code public. You know, why did he keep it to himself for 30 years? Well, perhaps it might be a subliminal thing with him that he was told not to release the code until 30 years later. Yeah, when we had yeah. all these, when we had all these tools and programs to be able to decipher it. Well, he actually said that uh, he was actually thought he was going mad, didn't he? Writing down all these ones and zeros. Over yeah, what was it? Yeah. Um, was it 15 or 16 pages in a notebook? Yeah, 16 pages of, uh, of ones, ones and zeros. zeros. I mean, you, you would think if you're going to sit down and do ones and zeros, you would think you're crazy, wouldn't you? You know, for no, for no, yeah. set, no particular reason. Yeah, Jim says that he didn't know what binary code was. A lot of people have kind of picked up on that and said, oh, you know, they must have known what binary code was even back in 1980. But he says he didn't. And because he was writing down his ones and zeros, you know, he must have thought, crikey, this is like... I'm, I must be insane writing these down. Mm. What is this all about? I mean, I think it's easy nowadays to say, well, we all know what binary codes are, but we've got to remember, he was he was in his 20s back in 1980. Yeah, uh, he was about 26, 27, something like that, yeah, yeah. as a sergeant. Um, yeah. And there's no reason why he would know what binary um, codes meant even back then. Well, even know? if you did know what binary was, you, 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 you know, you're writing down a string of binary code that you don't know where it's coming from, but you're just writing it down. Mm. And, you know, that, that is enough to make you think you're going insane. Well, especially over 16 pages, and, you, and it's actually coming out with the results that you're, you're coming out with now. Um, I, I would think that would just be impossible to do, to actually forecast that, you know? Well, yeah, well, the, the thing is, is that a lot of people picked up on that too. Oh, you know, how could you do that? How could you write down these numbers in the right sequence? Um you know, just like that, just one down. Mm. And really, as I, as we discussed this before offline, um, you know, I'm a guitarist, so when I play a solo, when I play a guitar solo, um, I don't even think about what I'm playing. It would just, it would just emerge. You know, after mm. playing the first few notes, it would just run in sequence uh, perfectly. Now, if I was to think about each note I was playing, I'd mess it up. Yeah. But it's like a, a pattern that's already been kind of, you know. I know, burned into the mind, and that you only have to write the. I'm sorry, you only have to play the first two notes or the first note or whatever, and it just starts to flow. And it's like if you was walking down steps. If you thought about every step you took, you'd probably fall down. It's an autonomous thing. It's uh, it's like driving a car. You know, when you reach for the gear stick and you mm. just do it automatically, mm. you don't think about it. It's a it's a robotic thing, and it's just a pattern that's been put into your mind you know that you've learned but you've learned it over and over and over again it becomes a pattern yeah. you can just generate yeah. whenever you want to do it so i'm thinking that it's the same kind of principle with the code you know with the binary ones and zeros were kind of injected into his mind 
and it was a pattern as if he'd learned them he was able to just write them out mm. in fact as i said jim can still do it he can still write out those ones and zeros in sequence and he still doesn't know what he's writing <laughs> No, he doesn't know what he's writing, and he said to me, you only have to, and well, what I said to him was, you only have to probably write down the first couple of binary figures, and uh, ones and zeros, and, he, and it just flows from there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, that's what it is. It's a pattern. Yeah. Well, I think we've got to tackle the point that um, some people have suggested that you two got together to write this book, and that the whole thing was conjured up. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think that for one minute, but, um, you know, I, I think you ought to try and put that to bed, Gary. I mean, you have, I think in my mind you have put it to bed already. But there were suggestions, because uh, you, you mentioned about he had a, a partner that came to live with him some time back, and she seems yeah. to have gone out of her way to try and destroy Jim's um, narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see why. Um, because she was in a relationship with him. Yeah, and Jim ended the relationship. So there would be a lot of bitterness involved, I guess. But um, no, there, there's no way that me and Jim got together to, you know, devise all this and, you know, make out something that, you know, to fool the public. I'm not into doing that. I, you know, I go out of my way to make sure that everything I put out is factual hmm. uh, data, you know, and I will speculate about things, but I'll tell them that I'm speculating right now and you know I I don't want to hoodwink the, the public I wouldn't be able to sleep at night I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I mm. did that you know uh, you've got to be honest and um, I actually thought it was Jim that may have devised the code at first when I was first found oh, right. yeah, yeah. but I realised um, that no it couldn't you know he couldn't have done it and anyway a lot of the things I've been finding when I communicate it to Jim it, it just he'll just say yeah okay and, it, and I know that he's not taken the time to read it properly or actually try to understand it properly you know it's just over his head and uh, he's, he's not lived and breathed this stuff like I have over the years and in fact I think that the experience I had back in 93 and the research I did into that experience and what I was discovering later on uh, was all in preparation for me working on the code later Mm. You know, and, and that's why the code fell into my lap, I think, because it's the way I approach certain things. It's, the way, it's my approach to it that maybe is the key to unlocking all this information from the code. Mm. So it's the way I personally approach it. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm an INTJ, you know, which is uh, one of the Jung's psychoanalytical kind of, um, what do you say? It's like a, a certain... Um, state of mind a certain mode of perception yeah. and uh personality type and that's what i am an intj and i know that because i had it i had a test on that right and uh, i see things a lot differently from a lot of other people it frustrates me actually it frustrates me yeah i mean at the time when when jim got in touch with you did you actually know anything about the rfi as we as we, as we call it the rennish from forest 1980 ufo incident yeah because i i actually first read the paper you know the, the uh, news of the world when it first came out on that sunday um i remember my dad, oh, was, oh, I, was, I, was living, <laughs> I was living with my parents at the time and my dad got the news of the world and i he said look at that on the front page and 
he kind of scoffed at it, and I I, I read it, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I and mean, I, I kind uh, of, followed... of course, that was the the Art Wallace story. He later turned out to be Larry Warren, and of course, that was all alien based, wasn't it? Yeah, I followed the incident over the years, and um, yeah, and I I didn't know Jim Penniston, but the funny thing is, before Jim Penniston got in touch with me, I saw a documentary about Venusian. And he was being acted by this guy, um, you know, and he was, the, the scene was with him underground or in some facility where he's being given the sodium pentafol. Hmm. And I thought to myself, that would be an interesting guy to talk to, you know, um, maybe what he knows and that. And a couple of weeks later, he gets in touch with me by emails out of the blue. Wow. And, and he wanted me to look at the coordinates on the code. And he, what it is, is because I... In the past, uh, with the books I've had out, you know, I'm kind of known as someone who looks into codes and kind of deciphers ancient uh, symbology and that kind of thing. Um, I'm seen as maybe the go-to guy to, I don't know, decipher certain things or look at certain images or symbols to try, try and decipher or interpret the right information from it. Hmm. So... Uh, yeah, that's why he got in touch with me. I mean, also, you've got to sort of notice that um, that partner who was trying to um, um, poo-poo his story, basically, was the one that actually put you two together in the first place. So, you know, so it doesn't, yeah, no, it, so it doesn't follow on that you got together, you know, as, as, no. as, as he suggested, to uh, fool everybody, does it? You know? No, Jim wouldn't have, he just wouldn't have the patience to do anything like that. <clears throat> and um, as I said, all this is purely from the code. Everything I've found is purely from those coordinates found in the code, which are from 1980. Um, Jim did have, a, have the pages tested, and the guy who was kind of expert at, at testing pa these pages, the ink and the paper, did say that it's in the round about 1980. Mm. But he needs a proper test done, you know, with the, the technology we have today, that still needs to be done. But I'm, I'm now convinced with, I mean, having known Jim now all this time, I'm convinced that what he's saying is, is true, you know, mm. that he wrote down those coordinates at the time he said he did and he got them the way he said he did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I know one of the people that says they never saw any of those notes. It was with Colonel Charles Hall. <laughs> Uh, he's, he's, yeah, because he's, Jim said Jim said that he used to take the pages out of the book before he showed anyone the book because he didn't want them to see it. Mm. He didn't want them to see the ones and zeros because he was embarrassed by it. Yeah, yeah, because of because it questions was, uh, to ask that he couldn't answer. Yeah, the book was a ring binder, and he could actually remove the pages, and sometimes he put them at the back of the book. You know, mm. so that would explain that. But and then people say the notebook was something that came up many years later, you know, that Jim introduced the notebook years later. But there's the uh, the account by the, the guy he was showing the notebook to on the bus, you know, returning from the incident, going mm. back to the base. Mm. You know, where he, he, Jim showed him the sketch he did of the, of the craft. Of the craft, yeah. From the same notebook. And that notebook Jim had actually taken to a conference, which was uh, just 18 days after he... Um, after he uh, retired in 93 and he took that notebook along then and it was the first time he could come out and speak the truth about what had happened 
because before that time, um, and he, and you still get these skeptics saying, oh, Jim's changed his story. Mm. Well, no, he actually changed the story to the truth after he was told to tell lies about it, mm. you know, to, to give the fabricated version that the, um, the OSI had, had, had given him on a small piece of paper. Well, yeah. on a piece of paper which was only had half of the account that Jim had written out initially. Yeah, it'd all be watered down, hadn't it? Yeah. In fact, yeah. it, it looks and, like they'd actually tried to yeah. make the two or the three incidents, whichever <laughs> whichever way you look at it, into one, really, didn't they? They tried to make it all like it was one incident. Yeah, that he never got more than, uh, I don't know, 40 metres, you know, in front, in, in, to the craft, and uh, that was that was untrue. You know, that, that's what they wanted him to put out. And he had to abide by what they told him or he'd lose his job. Yeah. He'd be kicked out. And so it was after he retired that he thought, you know, well, I'm just going to go ahead and tell the truth now. Hmm. That's what he did. Well, I mean, there's something that falls, you, there's yeah. something that falls over with that as well, because um, the next day Jim went out to um, take some plaster casts of the actual landing gear. Yeah, that's right. And also, I mean, they, yeah. even with Colonel Hall. Well, it was actually that same day. Yeah. It was actually that same day. It was that, you know, after... Cause yeah, that morning, that's right, place. yeah in the early hours in the morning and then Jim went out later in the day to actually before before lunchtime he actually got it done hmm. he, he couldn't sleep he couldn't go to bed and that's what I remember him saying yeah. and, he, and he needed some evidence and that's why he went out and took plaster casts of the uh, landing gear but he actually said that the landing gear wasn't anything that was um, you know mechanical or you know metal or anything like that he said it was beams of light he said it was actually standing on beams of light it was actually resting on beams of light and these beams of light he could see were making indentations into the ground hmm did you, well, did you know about that yeah i did no i did i have well i wasn't actually sure i've heard two different stories about the the the, the landing gear that nobody really was really sure what it was but i have heard that it was a beam beam of light yeah um, it's like it was resting on it's resting on laser beams of light. Yeah, I mean the thing is that uh, Colonel Holt also mentions that nothing was reported about um, a craft having landed in the forest on the first night, really. Um, yeah. But the fact is that Colonel Holt knows about the fact that Jim went in to take plaster casts because he actually had a plaster cast from him to show people. That's so right. it's kind of uh, it don't that sort of don't really tie up, does it? You know, because no. you either believe that no. something landed, otherwise why would he be showing the plaster cast? Yeah, um, you see, I went through all this, and I, I know all about it because I've done all the research on it and for the, for the first book. And I'll say it's the first book because these other two follow-up books coming, but that's the reason why it was called, you know, number uh, book one timeline. Hmm. Uh, what Jim wanted to do, because I just wanted to get a book out about the findings of the code, but Jim said to me, look, what I need to do first is just get a book out that I've always wanted to do, which just shows my account of what happens yeah. and the aftermath. He said it's more. He said it's important that I give the aftermath of what happens to show people's attitudes and, and what they were doing and what they were believing mm. and what they were trying to do after the incident. Um, he said, and my experience of it all. Uh, he said, I need to do that. And I said, actually, that would be a good idea because you need to lay a foundation for what comes next with the findings of the code. So um, then I did all this research and I, you know, it took nearly five years to, to write that book 
And I said it's yeah, like 700 no. pages. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the, my research, what I did, went into the end notes of the book. And the, the end notes are extensive. It's like two books in one. It's like you get you get one book which is like Jim's account, and the second book which is like all what happened around him, things that he wasn't even aware of that were happening, uh, based on what I found in uh, witness um, witness uh, accounts and uh, yeah, yeah. What other you know watching videos on it, uh, listening to in radio interviews, all that, and I I went for what I consider to be. My, more or less the whole, the whole jumble, you yeah. know, what there is out there. It actually took me and, about uh, a year to read it. <laughs> yeah, um, but also uh, what Jim described to me, I mean, I wrote, I wrote his account as well. I wrote out his accounts, but, I, but based on what he was telling me and what he was feeling and what mm. he was thinking at the time, and I was able to kind of, um, I don't know, articulate it better so I could give his account what I wanted to do and what he wanted to do most especially is is give an account for the reader so the reader felt that they were there with him. Yeah, that's right. Experience. And it does, minute by minute, doesn't it? Foot by foot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what I mentioned about Colonel Holt, I mean, I've got the, I've got the greatest respect for Colonel Holt. I mean, he's, he's actually a friend of mine. He's, he's come to stay at our place and everything. But I, yeah, yeah, I've got to point out the fact that... Um, when you got Monroe Nevels, he's got quite a lot in the book as well, and he he says yeah. a lot of things that um, that disagree with a lot of what Colonel Holt says. Um, yeah. And my my last show actually at the end of twenty twenty one when I sort of packed it in, but then I sort of come back yeah. sort of six months later. <laughs> that was the last show, um, yeah. and he came over very believable, and the fact that um, what he was saying seemed to really match up with a lot of what um, what um, Jim was saying. And, yeah. you know, it does leave a lot of holes there that, uh, I mean, I, I don't think we'll ever get the yeah. whole story now, to be honest. I know we've, we've got a pretty good story in the Rendlesham, you know, Jim's book and yours book, but your book. Yeah, but, well, well, yeah. But, I mean, there's always oh, yeah. going to be questions out there from people, isn't there? Is what I'm trying to get yeah, at. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when I, was, when I was researching it, I was kind of flustered, you know, with, with the uh, contradictions in in uh, interviews, different interviews that one you know mm. like one of the witnesses had done, and he contradicted himself you know many times just by looking at just all the different interviews you know I got, I got that with Colonel Holt especially, and I could only deliver what the truth is you know and I and based on the interviews I heard and what I saw in certain documentaries, what he'd mentioned. And there were contradictions he made, you know. He, he didn't seem to fit. He'd say one thing, and then would say another thing, you know, based on the same detail of the incident. And, um, you know, I, I'm kind of frustrated by that. But mm. I thought, I can't hide it. I've got, to, I've got to deliver, you know, what is actually out there. Now, the thing is, he didn't like it. And um, then he started to kind of, I don't know. Uh, attack me in the media. I know, yeah. That's uh, why I thought I'd better bring this up because I know you've been attacked in the media and everything. And he yeah. even tried to get at me through my wife, yeah. you know. And but I remember when he was on the show with you, I had to laugh because he he mentioned that Heather, my wife, was Jim's wife. You know, Jim Pennison's wife. Oh, right. And oh, must have missed that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
he he said um was it he, he I don't know he he spelt our name wrong he or he right. well he said um what was it now it was Oz it wasn't Osborne it was something else he got the name wrong uh. and I thought well you know it's maybe he's going senile or something in his old age yeah. but you know he wasn't getting those facts right and what he had said uh, what he had uh, was claiming my wife had said just wasn't true. Mm. You know, it's nothing that she would have said, you know, online or anything. I mean, well, I don't see why she would get involved in it, Heather. Anyway, why would she get involved? You know, she wouldn't, and uh, she wouldn't have said such childish things. And it was, a, it was really childish. You know, uh, saying that once this book is out, you know, the other witnesses are going to be destroyed. I mean, I if. If Heather had said that online, I would have reacted against it, you know. But mm. she isn't the sort of person to say that kind of thing. Mm. And it must have been said by somebody else. It wasn't said by me. It wasn't said by Jim. And it wasn't said by Ever. So he got it wrong. He's just misread something. And, and yeah. yeah, so that's well, my... That's I wonder my if I said thing. it. Uh, no, <laughs> that's what I'm joking. You know, I, <laughs> I, no, I mean, there's a lot of people. Chuddy, as you see, there's so many people out there that probably would say something like that. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't out to attack Colonel Walt. I was just telling the truth. Yeah, that's right. That's what it all boils down to. I, like I, say, I, I, mean, I, I like I like Chuck. I mean, he's a, he's a good old boy, I should say. But um, I, there are there are several holes, and I, I actually think in the early days he was actually trying to cover up for his men that was working under him. You know, and I yeah. think some of the stories got a little bit twisted. And he's probably dug, dug himself into a little bit of a hole at times, and not knowing how yeah. to get out of it in, in the later years. And also, you get like Maybe, full, you yeah. get false memories as well, don't you? I mean, I've had them myself. And um, all, all that was evident. All that was evident was what I was finding during the research. And, um, and I couldn't just suppress it. I couldn't just or ignore it. Hmm. It's something that I thought. Well, if this is going to be the definitive book that Jim wanted, yeah. Then I've got to I've got to show you know everything that's out there, even if some of it contradicts something you know else that they've said and. Yeah, you know, it all—it's got to be out there, and the reader makes up his or her own mind, you know. Yeah. About it. Well, I've got to say, I mean, after reading the book myself, I didn't really see anything absolutely derogatory in it about Colonel Hall, Colonel Hall, you know. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done anything. I wouldn't. Have yeah, done there's anything. nothing really offensive in there. It's just like pointing out different things that you've said this here, and but it, it sort of was that there, and you know, the same as what has been said about John Burroughs. Um, like he said one well, thing, he one. You know, Jim was kind of angry that once he and John had kind of gone their separate ways, that John started attacking him. Hmm. And there are a lot of things that throughout, you know, throughout the time they'd known each other and since the incident and even during the incident, that Jim had witnessed certain things with John that he didn't agree with and uh, which made him think, you know, this guy, you know, he, he can't be depended on and and. He knew these things, but he never actually said any of that in public. Mm. But once John started attacking him, he thought, that's it, I'm going to tell the truth now, and I'm going to use it in the book. I'm going to tell the truth in the book. Exactly what I saw, what I observed, what I thought, what I felt, you know, when he was with me. You know, so, uh, and then you, then you get everybody, then you get people saying that, oh, John was just, uh, sorry, Jim was just out to attack John, you know, in the book. He mm. just wanted to, you know, put him down in the book. Yeah, what you seem to find is people fall into different camps, don't they? You get the Larry Warren camp, you get the John Burroughs camp, and you get the Jim the Jim Peniston camp. <coughs> <laughs> you know, did you not yeah. find that? 
Um, but it was, yeah, I've tried to keep, I've tried to keep my foot in all the camps over the years, you know, to try, yeah, to try and yeah. get at the, the actual truth, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. You get people following certain witnesses, um, and and you know, well, that's up to them. You know, it's up to them. It's it's they follow them like they're fans, you know, like mm. they're pop fans, and uh, or rock fans, and it's just. You know who's the mo- who's the most coolest? You know, oh Larry Warren is. Let's follow him. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, John. John's not, got not a anymore. I don't think. <laughs> John's got a swagger to him. He looks cool. You know, yeah. Let's, uh, you know, I mean, let's follow him. But you know, the only person that I found is is giving account giving an account is anywhere near the truth is Jim Penniston. Yeah. And that's not because I know him. Um, just looking through everything that I, I was researching. Well, that's based you know, on evidence, like you're saying. Discrepancies. Yeah. yeah. I could see where the discrepancies lay. And, and when I brought it up with Jim, he was able to explain it, you know, perfectly. Mm. The, the things that he didn't explain properly and that he was kind of confused about, mm. I thought, well, anyway, that's just a human failing, you know, that we all have. It's all to do with memory, really. But Yeah. I'll tell you, there's another, thing, there's another name that cropped up. <clears throat> Um, a few years back, because he came over here, um, and he was stating that he was out in the woods with Larry Warren, and that's Steve yeah. Longero. Yeah. Now, I think the evidence points out that Steve Longero was actually confined to the weapon storage area on that night, so there's no way he right, could have yeah. been out in the woods. I mean, uh, can you have you got? Do you know anything more about that? No, only what I've put in the book there. I did. I did mention Steve Longero. Um, because I had to, you know, I had to kind of put as much in there as I could mm. about all the witnesses and the people who claimed that, no, you could see that some of these people were writing themselves into the story. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, and I would, I would say that, you know, I found that with Steve Longero's account, you know, uh, you know, he would disagree, of course. Uh, but you know, when you look at it, when you're an outsider looking in and you can see the patterns and, um, that's why I had to dismiss Larry Warren's accounts because he contradicted himself so many times, mm. and you could see that they were just basically outright lies. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, like a pathological liar. Yeah. Would, uh, <clears throat> would I mean, that's been proven. I mean, as I say, it wasn't even in the it wasn't even in the Air Force for or just over nine months, was he it? Can't Almost, blame, yeah, less he than can't, ten months. He can't. Yeah, he can't blame people for for noticing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's what I get with some of the chaos demons in the world, you know, who will who will do something bad and then blame you for knowing about it, <laughs> yeah. you know, right, or yeah. finding out about it. Or, or they project their crap onto you, you know. Yeah. So um, I didn't set out to actually put Larry Warren down. It's just that that's, you know, I had to put out what the truth was from what I found in my research. And, and that was it. Hmm. Yeah, well, so is there anything else we need to go through? I mean, there is um, actually a lot. Yes, I know there's a lot. I mean, I actually want to talk a little bit about the two books you're working on, or is that a secret? We can't tell anyone. No, I've been putting stuff out <laughs> on the uh, on Facebook. I mean, Facebook, you know, it's funny. It's 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 not really the it's not really the, the medium to kind no. of you know promote mm. certain things or or show. Well, you did tell the truth on there. You get locked locked off straight away. <laughs> yeah, um, I I still think that people will just press like and not really read what I've written, 
and they'll just press like and um you know uh, that's okay look i put it out there for the record so mm, mm. people who are interested in reading it fine yeah well, it's what, really for the people who are interested see the important thing is um gary oh, we're on the paranormal dimensions page that i've got on facebook i'll actually put a lot of your text in on the page as well so anyone's listening right, to this yeah. can actually come to uh see what you said on it so yeah. uh, but I, I can also put links to your your page as well so they can sort of follow you if, you know, yeah. if people out there would like to yeah. follow Gary and see what else he's coming up with. Um, right, good. Yeah. But um, as I say, I know you're working on another couple of books, and I believe they're the same size as um, this rendition with Enigma, uh, which is about seven, almost 700 pages, isn't it? Yeah, there's enough, as I keep saying to people who are kind of down on the code, skeptics and that, I said there's enough data to fill three volumes, three large volumes. There is. And it's just all come out of those seven sets of coordinates. Mm. And remember me saying to you that this is kind of a strange thing about all this data that's encapsulated in those seven sets of coordinates. Now, if I get these books out, they're going to be in the public domain. All that information is going to be in the public domain. Mm. And maybe in the future when they actually find um, they can manipulate time and space and that, you know, they've got the secret of time travel, that they think oh yeah you know all that information that just come from all those seven sets of coordinates let's send those sets of coordinates back <laughs> so it's like it's like a loop it's like a time loop you know where does it end where does it begin and where does it end that's what i said that's what so, i said i thought i was gonna let you say that because it could be you that started all this in the first place <laughs> yeah, it's like i'm caught up in some sort of time loop it's a strange thing I yeah. mean, John Burroughs has recently gone on Jimmy Church show. Oh, I know. I know. Jimmy yeah. Show. yeah. And um, Jimmy Church kind of threw me a few curveballs, you know, with some of the questions he, he asked. And um, he didn't get it. He just didn't get the, what I was telling him about um, the initial information from the code, you know, the angles between the coordinates and that. It, it's like it just rolled off, off his back. And... Um, Anyway, John Burroughs is on his radio show only recently, and John is saying that we, I think, is from the future, that this phenomenon is yeah. from the future. Saying almost like what Jim has been I, saying. I, all I only choked on my coffee when I heard that. <laughs> and he said, and he said that I think it's like myself in the future communicating with myself in the past. <laughs> sort of, really, you know, because that's what the code. It's what I kind of get from the code is that it. It seems to be either from the future. Hmm. If we look at it in that way, you know, uh, in an objective way, but also it could be from a, a domain or place that's just outside our time, hmm. you know, our hmm. space-time continuum. You know, I don't know. But it's information that's come from somewhere else and it doesn't seem to be related to our timeline. It's a huge temporal anomaly with this code you know it's it's coming up with things that was not known back in 1980 when jim received the code when he claims he received the code mm. um it's like when i there's certain things i will find that have a relationship with what's happening now in the world you know and what's in the media that will come out of the code you know so i mean it, that in itself you know it just shows this it's just an anomaly a time anomaly mm. the whole thing yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's probably confused quite a few people that are listening to this as well. You might not. You might need to listen yeah. to it a couple of times. 
and the thing is, I don't think I'm ever really going to get to the end of it because, as I said, I'm still finding things, and I think I'm yeah. going to have to pass the baton, the baton onto somebody else to hmm. to pick up where I left off because. Really, I've concentrated on Giza. There's enough information yeah. about Giza. And I mean, there's no discoveries about Giza that's come from the code. You know, things that we didn't know about. Um, and that you know, there is just enough to keep me busy all these years. You mm. know, so the other the other sites, the other locations, the other coordinate sites, they all need to be looked at as closely as I have with the Giza coordinates, you know, from the code. So... Um, it's an ongoing thing. It's it's it lives and breathes. You know, it's still ongoing. It's not something that you can get to the end of quickly. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so it can still be going on. You know, after I pass away, it can still be going on with someone else learning things from yeah. it. I know at times it's got. You, I think you've said it's got too much for you. It's almost going to give it all out, weren't you? At some point. Well, no. That's that comes from. Most of the people's stupidity. When I try to communicate some of this stuff, it's like I get stupid comments back. Oh, and, right, uh, they yeah. don't really ask the, they don't really ask the right questions, and uh, I get frustrated with that. Mm, you know? mm. But there is something in the code, and they just—it's like really, I wish other people could do this themselves. And and if they find if they found what I have, then it would it would convince them. It would, uh, you know, that's why I've written it out so that people can follow what I've done and find out for themselves. It's, there's nothing better than people finding out mm. themselves. You know? Absolutely. It's own. Uh, so that's one of the things, yeah. I know. Uh, and with Facebook, with Facebook, there's so many, you know, every day I look at it, there's something stupid being said. Oh, yeah, it's always, yeah. It's not the right medium. Um, I have got people who have PhDs following what I'm doing, and they, they you know, they endorse it. I mean, it's Professor um, de Vierville, who happens to be the cousin of uh, the late Neil Armstrong. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, yep. he's, he's, he's been following it. And he, I talk to him regularly, you know, about the code. And he's, he, he thinks it's something that's really big that, needs, that everybody needs to be aware of. And, uh, but, you know, uh, people are kind of looking in the wrong direction for what they, what they think is going to be something that will... Um, prove the phenomenon mm. and really you know that 12 digit number that's been predicted by the code that's something that is relevant you know mm. in in that in terms of that you know yeah i think you've also got a faction of people out there that don't want to hear that it's not aliens you know if, if the whole yeah. thing comes out to, that they want it to be aliens <laughs> you know there's several yeah. people that are sort of convinced that oh it's got it must have been aliens but it's not necessarily the case you know no I mean, I believe in aliens. I believe they've been, they've visited here. But you know, seeing what I've seen and hearing what I've heard from you, I think it's quite a good possibility that it, you know it probably it could well be something interdimensional. You know, if you want to call it alien, then yeah. fine. You know. Yeah. No, that's the way I see it, and and I think it's um, I think it's got a lot to do with our own consciousness as well. I I'm thinking that this phenomenon is kind of stealing in and out of our reality through a mm. blind spot in our in our consciousness because a lot of the time these accounts say that the the phenomenon or what they witnessed or what they experienced seems real and unreal at the same time. So it's like this fusion of opposites, this fusion of uh, this kind of duality that goes on, and it's this like fusion of the two. You know, mm. like real and unreal. It's something that's real and unreal at the same time. 
And it seems to me that people, when they have these experiences, they're in a different kind of, they're in an awkward state of consciousness, which is akin to what I call a hypnagogic state, which is where you're awake and asleep at the same time, mm. or neither. You know, it's like a third state of consciousness. I'm like that constantly. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's like you, you enter the hypnagogic state at the point where you're falling asleep. If you kind of sustain your consciousness, if you, if you sustain your attention at the point where you fall asleep, then you might be able to move into this other reality. So where, real, you're yeah. then, hmm. where, where you're then having lucid dreams that seem real. And it's like you've entered another world. And it's the shamanic trance state as well. It's how they were able to move into these other realities yeah and it's the hypnagogic states where you're awake and asleep at the same time so it's a fusion of opposites and i think that's true with this phenomenon mm. Carl jung knew, knew about that Carl jung understood this mm. he called it the third force or the third thing the the tertium quid he called it which is which is latin for the third thing you know so um it's a kind of third reality it's neither it's neither something that is conscious objective and neither is it something that's subjective or, or subconscious. It's something other. And uh, it's a third thing. And I think that is the secret behind the phenomenon we're, you know, that a lot of people are experiencing. And even Colin Wilson, the writer, he said that the hypnagogic state is the open sesame to the paranormal mm. and mystical. And I knew Colin Wilson. I, I went down to see him in Cornwall. And we kept in touch. And, uh, you know, a lot of my work... Uh, actually stems from my conversation with Colin Wilson as well. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, very interesting man. I've got yeah. a few of his books on my shelf, yeah. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, he became a friend. And, um, yeah. Sorry about that noise in the background. Oh, no, it's, it's only, only traffic. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, no, it's not the traffic. It's the uh, air oh. conditioning. Oh, is yeah, it? I can't, so well, you can't actually hear it. So I shouldn't worry about it. I've had worse. I've had dogs barking and babies crying and all sorts of stuff. So I shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> anyway, Gary, I've got a big question for you. Yeah. Is there any chance you might be coming over to the UK anytime? Yeah, we talked about that, we? Um, yeah. I want to. I, I need to. I mean, my mother lives over there. And also Jim. I know Jim's uh, quite eager to come over as well. I mean, yeah, because I've been living in Wisconsin uh, since September. I've been living and was living in Pennsylvania. For a good five years on and off kind of thing i used to go back to uh uk actually yeah we should have mentioned that because you've got your british accent you actually live in the states <laughs> well, we should have mentioned yeah, that in the beginning been, shouldn't we yeah i've been living here solidly for the last five years uh six years i was kind of coming back and forth between you know here in the uk <clears throat> and uh, married heather over here and um been living over here since I don't know, was it 2015 or, well, it's more than that. No, 2016, sorry. 2015, I was kind of moving back and forth. And then I, I started living here from 2016. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I went your question. I, yeah, I'd love to go back to the UK. Um, you know, the whole thing with the, uh, the virus and that stops us from traveling, doesn't it? And I was going to go back at, at, at some point during that but you know the virus kind of stops all that and i never yeah. had a chance so yeah we won't go into the the virus <laughs> no <laughs> but, i do we've all got my mother no of course i know I, but i know jim's and, and it's, jim's quite eager to come over as well and i think i did actually try to suggest that maybe we could fix something up if um i know even monroe neville's wants to come over as well so 
Well, we could uh, yeah. fix up something where the whole three of you come over. I think the trouble yeah, is... Yeah, be it, an ideal. I think the whole thing is, it, the, the problem is, he's financing all three, you know, it's... Uh, it's all, right to, it's all right to come Things up with a, now. Yeah, with an air ticket for sort of one person from the States, but to come up with like three air tickets is... Yeah, uh, no, no, I, I, I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's <clears> ideal, but and it would be an ideal thing, but practic, practicality, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's just put it, let's just put it on the back burner. It's, it's simmering there, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would like to put it that way. My, my intention is to get back to the UK at some point, you know, um, in the near future. And of yeah. course, you'll have to get in touch with me, and maybe we can fix up some sort of a conference or something. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, I have I have turned down. Well, unless you want to go somewhere else, I <laughs> yeah, I have turned down conferences in the past. I, I know you have. Um, yeah, I, you know, that's one thing about me. I kind of work against myself. I, I have a lot of data that I want to share with people. You know, especially with this thing with the code, but I don't actually put myself out to promote myself or mm. yeah, i mean mm. it's really about it's really about the you know the information it's not about me mm. but i don't really put myself out there to i'm not like a lot of those other ufo kind of um i don't know entertainers you know i don't want to be part of that kind of circle you know and, and be seen as such mm. um in fact i kind of shy away from a lot of public uh, exposure you know mm. no, so, no, yeah, no, no i do know that firsthand <laughs> So getting me to a conference is it can be a big deal, uh, <laughs> <coughs> but I, I, my intention is at one at some point to actually put this on the road, you know. Yeah, and, and get this stuff out. Well, especially with the other two books coming out as well, um, you know, perhaps that's the time yeah. to start thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But anyway, Gary, it's been fantastic. Now, um, before you go. If anyone's not yeah. read not read the, the the book by Jim Peniston, Rendlesham Enigma, Book One Timeline, yeah. it's not just Jim Peniston, obviously it's Gary Osborne as well. It's uh, yeah. it's almost seven hundred pages. I think in something Jim said it was seven hundred and two pages. Now I think that's probably the Kindle version he's talking about. Was it? Do you think? It may be a Kindle version. Um, I don't know the it, paging comes up a bit different, doesn't it? No, I I think it goes by yeah the page count uh, of what kind of format it's in. Yeah. I mean, it is. When, if you look at the manuscripts itself, it does come to seven hundred and odd pages. Right. Probably more than the seven hundred and two, but you know, <laughs> it's condensed down when you, you format it. And, yeah. Uh, well, I yeah, imagine it's because because so the, the, the notes are all in smaller print, aren't they? So maybe as you as you condense exactly. it down, it's uh, it, exactly. it ends up with less pages. Yeah. Some people have complained about the print being too small, but you can't. You know, you just can't please everybody. No, but it needs yeah. to be distinguished between the main part of the writing, doesn't it? I can see yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, if the, if the end notes were put in the same, just a, I don't know, a larger font, it it it'd run to probably a thousand pages. Mm. Know, so. mm. And it would probably get confused with the rest of it because at least you can instantly identify what's what, can't you? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people have been also asking for an audiobook version, but it's kind of the practicality of that because how do you have someone narrate mm. Jim's account and actually then go to the end notes which each, are kind of inserted in, in the in the account? Yeah, you'd have to do each note with every um every highlight or yeah, where it mentioned is it, wouldn't you? I think that would be the only way you yeah. could do it. So that would be problematic, you know, in a practical yeah. sense. So I don't know how that would be 
I don't know how that would become a reality. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's something for the future. I'd love to see. I'd love to see an audio book of that. In fact, that's how I, that's how I kind of absorb all the books that I, I get now is through audio. Um, mm. My eyes are shot, you know, from, from <laughs> yeah. all the years of, of meticulous, like, I don't know, detailing in the, in the graphics I produce and all that and writing all the time. And my eyes are shot. And so the last thing I want to do is read a book, yeah. read, but I want to absorb a, the information that yeah. so I get the audio version. Well, I mean, the nice thing is you can walk around, make a cup of coffee, make a sandwich and all that, can't you, while you're, yeah. while you're listening? You know, yeah. Which is not something you yeah. can do when you're reading a book. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I turned to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have we covered everything? I think we have. Yeah. I mean, unless you've got, unless you can think of something else you'd like to say. I mean, so there, there are a lot of things with this code that I'd love to to mention and I'd love to share. I tell you what. I tell you what, Gary. When when you bring your other two books out, maybe come back on again. Yeah. And we'll go through yeah, all the figures sure. again. Yeah, you see, one thing with this code is is that one one thing you find will lead to another thing, and then that will lead to something else and yeah. another thing. And it's and really, when you look at it all as a whole, if you look at it holistically, it all it all matches up. It's like a grid; mm, it kind mm. of all grids together. And it, what I mean is, it's correlative information. One thing will will uh, confirm something, and that other thing will confirm something else in the code, and it goes full circle. Yeah. So. This is how the code is, and it's like there's there's no way Jim could have done that. He couldn't have encapsulated all that in just seven coordinates. You know? Yeah, it'd be great to get you and Jim on the same show. Actually, have you ever done that? Uh, yeah, we did it. Uh, we did it one time, but it was kind of difficult. Um, I don't know, but really, all people want to do is talk to Jim. They want him to go over his same account all the time. They want him mm. to give his account a touch in the craft. And it goes over and over. They go over and over and over again in each each of these yeah, uh, yeah. radio podcasts, and they they just ask for Jim. They're not actually talking about the code. If they bring the code up, Jim isn't su- isn't sufficiently brought up to to speed on the no. information that the code has, has generated to be able to put it across properly. Yeah. So really, yeah, it does need me to talk about it, but they don't get in touch with me. They get in touch with Jim. <laughs> That's terrible. It's like Jim, it's like Jim was the only one who wrote the book. You know, I'm not bothered by that, you yeah. know, because uh, Jim asked for the book to be written and I did that for him. And he's, he's like happy as Larry, happy as Larry Warren. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, hopefully he'll ever listen to this. So it will get an idea off of him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's he's he's, happy. he's a kid in a sandpit with it, you know. He's <laughs> he's it's what I wanted to do, and um, I mean, he did ask other people to to write with him. Yeah. I mean, he, he did ask Linda Morton out, or Linda Morton out tried to do that for him, but they kind of fell out. Yeah, I know. Um, so really, it's it, you know, I'm happy. I'm really happy that he's happy with the book, you know, because that's what the intention was to get a, his account out. Yeah. How he wanted it. Yeah, and yeah, I think that, that's quite that's important because I do understand there was a little bit of disappointment with the book he did with John Barrows and uh, Nick Pope, uh, where he where a lot right. of his account was actually left out of it apparently. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but but there, you know, as I said, there's a lot of um, because I've I've written a book with Jim. Uh, I've got his account across. I could relate all the things that he's related. You know, I've I've lived and breathed it with him hmm. the last eleven years. So. Um, I can talk about the code and I can talk about the incident as if I was there actually hmm. you know as long as you're not having these same nightmares 
Yeah, oh, yeah, it does turn up in my dreams. Yeah, I mean, of course, the code, the information from the code, that keeps, you know, it's a it strange does. thing. Yeah. I keep getting num, I keep getting numbers. I told this to Robert Bovell, you know. Robert Bovell asked me to contribute an appendix to his book called Cosmic Womb, which he wrote with um, uh, Chandra Rickmasing, who's a, who's a PhD, he's a cosmologist, and mm. he studied under Fred Hoyle, the, the astronomer. And... Um, he asked me to contribute this uh, appendix to his book because of the things I'd found about the Great Pyramid, the mathematical properties that have been encapsulated in the Great Pyramid. And he thought he was he was really kind of uh, impressed by some of the things that I'd found. So he asked me to contribute this appendix. But what he didn't know was is that a lot of the things that I'd found was actually from the code. It was actually, mm. you know, it was the code that was responsible for me to find it in a lot of this stuff. Mm. And he didn't know about it. Um, you know, it's something that you should have known, maybe, um, but I didn't mention it because it was something that I needed to prove properly, you know. Mm-hmm. And this was before I, I found the, uh, the the reference to the fine structure constant. Mm. I don't think I don't think uh, Robert Bovell would have been open to it, you know, because it's from a UFO incident, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Gary. Yeah, and as I said, what I was going to say is, sorry, go on. You can edit that bit out. No, no, it's all right. What I was going to go on to say, because when I brought up Robert Bovell, the reason why I brought him up was because um, I, at the time when he uh, he asked me for the contribution, I was having dreams about all this mathematics. You know, it was like appearing in front of my eyes, and I'm sure that in a subliminal way. It was, it was going into my mind what I would be finding, what I would discover later on. It was already as if it was just telling me about certain connections oh. that I wasn't picking up consciously, but was going into my subconscious that I would find later on. You know, and Robert Bovell, when I told him that, he said, "Yes." He says, "That's that. I think that's how the Great Pyramid was built." He said, "How, how the inception and the, what a conception of it came about, and how it, why it was built." Because certain people were able to, like shamans, for instance, were able to gather information uh, from inside that allowed that allowed them to be able to conceptualise this thing that they built. Wow! You know? <laughs> so that's just something else. That hey, it's very deep. Uh, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. It's. Um, I'm very honoured to have you on. Thank you for taking the time to come on and speak to us and um, go through all those figures and. I'm sure there's going to be a bit of confusion and so also, and probably raised a few more questions in people's minds. But I think yeah, you, right. you, you've covered things very well and um, I just hope everyone's enjoyed listening to it. I'm sure yeah, I'm sure they have. If anyone wants to get in touch with me or Gary, you know, please do. And if you've got any questions you want answered, perhaps we can, or well, Gary will, will try and answer them for you. I always do that. I always address people's questions and I do that on Facebook as well. If you... If you look at the thread and all the posts in the thread, I always answer people. You do, and very, very detailed as well. I know, I've seen them. Yeah. But anyway, like yeah. I said, I will put some links on the Paranormal Dimensions page for everything, and, uh, yeah, and um, we yeah. shall eagerly await the next two volumes. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. <laughs> and you go. You Thanks, take David. care of yourself. Say hello to Heather for Thank me. You. Cheers. Take I'll care. Wonder. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. There we are. I hope you enjoyed that. That was Gary Osborne. And uh, very informative. I hope you got some understanding out of that, uh, out of uh, the work that's gone into um, 
what what Gary's been doing over the years. It's uh, obviously been very painstaking for him. Okay, right. Well, we shall leave it there. If you, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is davidyoung2qn at yahoo.co.uk. That's davidyoung2qn at yahoo.co.uk. If you have got any questions, uh, forward them on to me and I'll forward them on to Gary and we'll see if we can answer them on the show for you. But until the next time, we'll just play out with Jim Penniston uh, mentioning about his book and uh, where you can get it, etc. I hope you'll join me again next time. My next guest will be Eleanor Wagner, who's also a uh, paranormal radio presenter on this same network. Until then, bye-bye. Hello, my name is Jim Penniston. I am here to tell you about a groundbreaking new book about the Rendlesham Forest incident of 1980. It's called The Rendlesham Enigma. This book, 85% of it, is previously unknown to the public and to other witnesses. After 39 years of disinformation and misinformation coming out about the incident itself, I decided to team up with Gary Osborne and write the definitive book. I thought I was more than qualified since I was the first responder of the USAF United States Air Force deployment off base on a craft unknown origin. What I would like everybody to do to know that this, is, this book is definitive. It's 702 pages long. Of that, 702 pages, 300 pages are endnotes. What it does is presents the facts like never been presented before. Everything I kept close to the vest all these years is in this book. I will put you right beside me on contact line. You will go through the emotional distress that I went through. But at the end of the day, after reading this book, you will have a complete understanding of what actually happened at Rendlesham Forest that night. So please, go to Amazon.com, buy either the paperback or the Kindle. I guarantee you this much, you will not be disappointed. Unidentified flying objects, commonly known as flying saucers, do exist. Some kind of flying objects have been photographed in the sky. If they cannot be identified as objects known to man, what are they? If they are not man-made, who made them? If they are not from this planet, where are they from?
Paranormal Dimensions is fortnightly on Mondays on the Paranormal UK radio network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.